Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Hello and welcome. My name is Chad Kruger and I will be the host of this AUKUS Amplified podcast. Today I'm joined by an esteemed group of colleagues to discuss the ever-important topic of value-based care. In this podcast, we will touch on some of its history, how value-based care may change in the future, and what AUKUS is doing to try to help its members navigate this process. You couldn't ask for a better group of participants for this topic, and I'd like to introduce you to them now. Hi, I'm Dr. Yates, better known as Chick, and I'm from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, and my work is mostly through the UPMC, which is the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Hi, I'm Rich Iorio. I'm the Vice President for AUKUS and currently the Chief of Adult Reconstruction at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Max Courtney. I'm a hip and knee surgeon with the Rothman Institute in Philadelphia. Thanks for putting this together, Chad. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So Dr. Yates, I'm going to start with you. Would you be able to provide our audience a relatively brief history on value-based care, kind of where it came from and what its goals were? Sure. Value-based care is part of the concept of value-based medicine. And it was a response to a multitude of different things that were happening over 20 years ago. And those things included the rising cost of healthcare, the fact that fee-for-service medicine was being rewarded for, for the most part, solely for volume, and the great variability in terms of the delivery of that care, both in terms of cost and quality. The first inroads into value-based care were actually out of the commercial sector, where some of the payers were looking for a chance to try to consolidate and to uh, bring together not just the volume, but the outcomes and try to reduce the cost. This then generated further conversations in academic work, including the works of Michael Porter and the like, and the concept of the value of care being equal to the quality of outcome divided by the cost. And that value equation continues to drive the experience. With the beginning of the Affordable Care Act being passed, built into the Affordable Care Act was CMMI, which is the part of CMS that was created with a $10 billion every 10 years budget to try and innovate. And their innovations led to a number of different types of value-based care initiatives including affordable care organizations, a number of um, performance measures that were introduced that were going to happen regardless of CMMI, looking at the value or the quality of what was coming out of CMS spent dollars, as well as looking at whether or not the cost was excessive. And from that, you had the first experiments with bundled payments in the Southwest that led to something called BPCI, and then led to the more recent mandatory bundle, which is the CJR for hip and knee replacements. And the reason that you have three hip and knee surgeons on the podcast tonight, and the reason this is being presented to AUKUS is that when you combine hip and knee replacement, they become the greatest procedural cost to CMS. And so they've been focused on our procedures more than any others for not only bundle initiatives, but also those value-based measurements that they've been performing in terms of readmissions, complications, and actually every hospital gets accounted for the costs of their joint replacement programs. 
Now, from this, a lot of challenges have grown out of this exposure to basically mandated value-based care. And from that, some of the challenges have been trying to gather the data that you need to be able to respond to data that's being thrown at you in terms of your quality and cost. And one of the real big challenges is first educating surgeons as to how they're being measured, educating administrators as to how they're being measured. And then one of the things that is clearly a handicap for some hospitals is that they are smaller than others and they don't have the advantage of size or the economy of scale to be able to create excellent databases and excellent resources so that they can counter some of these measures. And that's where uh, a lot of hospitals have been having a problem is, is the data management. It's also important that the education and the enthusiasm of the surgeons be brought in because in terms of procedural value-based measures and in terms of bundles, we may only represent a small percentage of the overall Part B cost of a 90-day exposure but we represent about 90% of the decision-making costs for the entirety of a 90-day episode. So in effect, we now need to take ownership of not just the number of cases being done, but more importantly, that we deliver those cases as safely as possible and that we know that the pathway to recovery is completely covered all the way out for 90 days. Thank you for that. I know that's a tough summary to produce and I think you summed it up well for our listeners. Dr. Courtney, Dr. Yates mentioned in his brief history there that some institutions have a hard time keeping up with some of the changes in in terms of value-based care and implementing them so that patients can be well taken care of and institutions can do what they need to, to to make sure they can continue to grow as well. Are you able to touch on some of the issues you've run into at your institution, if any, in terms of not only keeping up with the changes within some of these bundle payment programs and value-based care programs, but also how you've implemented some of the perioperative optimization programs within your institution? Sure, Chad. So Chick gave a a really good summary, and there's several different Medicare bundled payments. In Pittsburgh, Chick's been the expert on CJR, which he touched on on the mandatory bundled payment. We took part in BPCI, which is a voluntary bundle, which went in our institution from 2015 to 2018. And total joint replacement has has come a long way. While the surgery itself really hasn't changed over the last five years, there's been several studies, one out of Columbia, that the number of minutes going into the procedure hasn't changed. It's still the same type of procedure. The perioperative care that we're giving patients has changed drastically. So when I was a resident 10 years ago, everybody got a morphine PCA. Everybody spent four to five days in the hospital. Half of our patients have went to rehab afterwards. Our readmission rate was double digits percent, uh, and that's completely changed. And as Chick pointed out, I mean, the, the surgeons really are taking the lead on optimizing the patient's care, and th- this takes effort. So at our institution, we have three full-time nurse navigators. We have to pay their salary and benefits. They're talking with every patient before the surgery. They're talking with every patient after the surgery. They're seeing whether they need help at home. They're trying to coordinate home health home or outpatient physical therapy, trying to minimize patients going to rehab. Uh, Our patients all have their phone numbers and someone from our team's personal phone numbers. We want them to contact our office instead of going to an emergency room. So all of these ways that that we've been trying to help manage the patient 
to prevent unnecessary readmissions, to get them to go home instead of going to rehab. And then we've tried to standardize and streamline protocols. So we have 33 fellowship trained joint replacement surgeons in our division and trying to get them is, is like herding cattle to get them to agree on one thing. But everybody, we're, everyone is using aspirin for DVT prophylaxis. We're using regional anesthesia unless there's a contraindication. We have a multimodal pain protocol and everybody is following the same protocols and that's really helping to optimize patient care. So looking at the literature, though, if you look at the amount of minutes and the amount of time that we're spending with patients, even though the surgery itself is actually the same, we're actually spending more time with patients. We published two studies out of our institution looking at telephone encounters because we're talking with the patients on a weekly, if not daily basis to manage their pain medication, to talk about the rehab and physical therapy. We're spending a a lot more time on average, seven extra telephone encounters, which adds up to another half hour per patient. We spend more time with preoperative optimization with these protocols, contacting our nurse navigators and our staff, our physician's assistants and extenders, contacting the patient's primary care physician and talking with them about optimizing them medically beforehand. So all of these things can take a lot of time and take work. And a lot of the bundled payment models don't recognize that. I think that's one of the limitations. So bundle payments have been widely successful. CMS has saved hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. But there, there, there needs to be some tweaks because our program accounting for the salary of our nurse navigators and accounting for the database that we use to track all of our patient outcomes and the minutes that we're spending still isn't being accurately reflected. Dr. Aurora, I saw you nodding your head uh, during during part of that talk. Max and Chick have been at the forefront of this from the beginning. And when you think about the perioperative effort that's been put in to make the patient experience better and provide a high quality total joint replacement operation to these people, the one thing that gets lost in any sort of value-based measurement is that these preoperative optimization protocols really need to start 20 years before a joint replacement, not 20 days, that in order to optimize these people maximally, these programs such as diabetes management, weight control, drug and alcohol abuse, cardiovascular and VTED management, the things that really make a difference in their outcome, these need to be optimized before they ever get to the orthopedic surgeon. And these things are beginning to happen there out in the community now. And we're beginning to see the fruits of that investment where the orthopedic quality of life and and health quality of the patients that we operate on is a little bit better. And when you operate on healthy patients, it's amazing how good the results are. However, there are certain populations of patients that have to be operated on despite their medical comorbidities, transplant patients, hip fracture patients, patients that have chronic diseases that aren't amenable to optimization. These non-modifiable risk factors aren't really accounted for in CMS's calculations. They've gotten a little bit better in the BPCIA 2 calculation, which we can talk about a little bit later with the HCC modifications. But still, if your population is sicker than somebody else's and you're in an MSA like chicks, you're penalized because your population is sicker than somebody else's since you're being compared to the other hospitals as your benchmark. In BPCIA2, at least you get to get compared to yourself, and that's a little bit fairer. But there does need to be better risk stratification in these models in order to make it fair. 
in order to stop the lemon dropping and cherry picking. Dr. Yates. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on something that Max brought up, which is that he brought up the the concept of getting a buy-in from all the surgeons. And the broader concept of that is eliminating variation. The standardization of what you present in the process improves quality and lowers cost. There have been studies that have been done that have shown that volume makes a difference in terms of everybody acting like they've been there before. But volume doesn't work if you don't have the standardization and the pathways and the lack of variability that is critical to coming to more routine outcomes and less complications and less costs. And it's been shown that a hospital with slightly smaller volume will still trump the hospital that has huge volume but has never captured or conquered its variations in delivery. So I think that's an important concept that he was alluding to. It takes a lot of time and buy-in. We were fortunate in that we had gone through our pathway process and developing our electronic medical record order sets before the CGR hit us. So we had already been up and running with that before we were all of a sudden hit with having to participate within a bundle. Just to follow up with Dr. Iorio's comments, you can do the same thing in terms of the surgeon's response to those patients that have inherent risk and developing the pathways, the sub-pathways, if you will, or the, the ways to handle each of those you know, critical sets of medical risk in such a way that patients are treated fairly and they get that care readily is another thing where you can take the variability out of it and make it something that happens on a routine basis. Another important thing is that by going through the process that Chick and Max described, by standardizing your practice, by optimizing your patients, by care managing the heck out of them, what you then do, it not only helps your bundle patients, it will improve the management of all the other patients in your product line and will make it more efficient, more cost effective, and you'll find that your complication rates will go down in your private pay patients as well. In the end, it's a win-win for the hospital and it will make the uh, resources invested in making the bundle work, help your other patients do well and becomes a very wise investment, both for the patients and the hospital. And we've really helped outcomes too. Rich talked about modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. A lot of our medical colleagues give us orthopedic surgeons a little bit of a hard time that we're just focused on the joint, the hip or the knee or the bone. And in reality, I I do feel oftentimes that we're playing primary care doctor and we're actually helping with these outcomes. We're providing smoking cessation counseling in the office. We have a dietitian on staff. If your BMI is over 40 or you request it, we're sending you to a dietitian to talk about portion control and getting nutrition labs. We're getting hemoglobin A1Cs and doing glycemic screening on all of our diabetic patients. So Us as orthopedic surgeons are reaching a little outside of our comfort realm, but it is, as Rich alluded to, this is improving the outcome of of our patients and helping minimize our complications. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Dr. Courtney. We're all trying to obviously get the best possible outcome for our patients, uh, whether that's preoperatively, intraoperatively, or postoperatively. And ultimately, that's what value-based care comes down to. But everyone spoke to the point about how important it is to have the institution and practice all in sync. And I think one of the things recently that's come up that's kind of got some people out of sync or are a little bit confused, and even patients for that regard, is the removal of both total knee arthroplasty and total hip arthroplasty from the IPO list. 
Dr. Deoriu, I know you've done a lot of work on this topic. Could you give us some comments on this and what's happened and how we're moving forward? Sure, I'll try and keep my comments in the civil mode, but there has been a lot of confusion about this. And part of the confusion is the fact that lawyers have gotten involved with this at the hospital level. They're trying to avoid audits, even though CMS gave the hospital's assurance that they would not try and do any rack audits uh, over the two midnight rule process. Hospitals are somewhat reluctant to believe this, feeling that after the two-year look-back period that there would be clawbacks. There are QIO audits, which are quality improvement audits, which are not criminal processes, but they take a lot of time. And they really don't want to go through that either. So for that reason, many hospitals interpreted the two midnight rule and the inpatient only rule to be mean that all patients um, needed to be not admitted to the hospital and be considered for observation status that were primary care Medicare beneficiaries, primary joint Medicare beneficiaries. This, of course, isn't true, but CMS didn't do us any favors. They didn't give us any criteria to make that decision. They looked to us to give them the criteria. So we have, and there have been a number of criteria given. Despite this, there are still hospitals that have either admitted everyone as an inpatient or admitted all their patients as observation status. And that still remains a little bit obfuscated to this day, where now they've doubled down and made it even more complicated. Because instead of a bifurcated patient population with inpatient versus observation or outpatient status, they've now added the ASC population to this and allowed uh, total knee replacement to be done in an ASC for Medicare beneficiaries. So now there's three different payments for the same patient population, depending on how the hospital decides to classify them and where they decide to do the surgery. Now, it's ACUS's and AOS's viewpoint that why don't you let the surgeons make a decision where those procedures should be done and decide what the best point of care is for that patient and who can be done outpatient, who can be done inpatient. And perhaps there really shouldn't be a difference in reimbursement for hospital outpatient surgery and hospital inpatient surgery, that patients really should just be reimbursed at one level so that uh, we take care of everyone the same. Maybe they end up in a 90-day DRG for everybody. And that way, whether the patient's done in an outpatient setting or an ASC or a hospital, they get the same strong level of care from the physician, uh, no matter where the care is, is given. That would greatly uncomplicate this process. That's not the case right now. I'd be remiss not to mention COVID at this point. They are going to extend hospital outpatient status to some hospital-owned ASCs if there is no hospital outpatient facility for the physician to use in a system, but that still isn't going to help out the private guys that have ASCs. And the significant difference in reimbursement is going to retard this process in some way. And it remains to be seen if it can be done safely in all Medicare beneficiaries as well. That still remains to be determined. So this is a mess. It's an evolution. And we're working on this. I think if you just do the best thing for your patients, everything will work out and not worry about the finances. But it makes a big difference to the hospitals. It doesn't affect the surgeons. 
Yeah, if I could just follow up on what Rich just said. There are mechanical issues with the IPO that has affected uh, CJR, and it affects any kind of a bundled program. And one of the big differences is, is that the mechanics of bundled the BPCI and the CJR, the mechanics are that it they are both retrospective reviews of the cost of the DRG 469 and 470. If a patient is not admitted, if they go home the same day and they become an outpatient billing, they're billed under the Hicks picks. They're billed under an outpatient code of around anywhere from ten dollars to $11,000 in terms of reimbursement for the, fee, the facility fees, the hospital money. And it should be remembered that the experience up until January of this year has been with hospital-only associated ambulatory care centers. It had to be a hospital outpatient center for you to be able to do an overnight, a uh, same-day discharge. That being said, those patients then become invisible in your bundle. And the fact of the matter is, is that you're more likely to encourage an outpatient stay in a healthier patient with less risk factors than in the population that needs to be in the hospital. So you end up fighting the dilemma of bleeding away your healthiest patients, most likely to not have complications and have the best chance of going home out of the population of patients for which you're going to be accounted for within your bundle. Now, people are aware of that, and either instinctively or consciously, the average around the country at this point is around 20% of patients being uh, at least discharged as outpatients. Some of them stayed overnight, but they didn't meet the two midnight rule. But interestingly enough, in the parts of the country that are CJR, that falls off to 15%. So there's a significant lag in terms of moving to shorter stays in those parts of the country that have an appreciation that they're only making their outcomes and costs not as good for that population that can be seen, which are in the DRGs. Now, that's going to be extended to March 31st of 2021, at least the CJR is. The interesting thing is, is that there's now a rules proposal that is just finishing the comment period as of uh, a few days from now. And in that rules proposal going forward, they're proposing that they would lump together hospital-based outpatients, in other words, your hospital outpatient department outpatients with your inpatients. And that creates an incredible threat to those patients that really need the hospital and need to be there for post-operative management because hospitals are going to, in competition within a region, are going to feel the pressure to increase the number of outpatients so their overall cost goes down relative to the regional cost, which they're expecting to go down because they expect the other hospitals to do the same thing. So it's a hard thing to conceptualize without a graph or a chart or being able to look at it. But it's something that we're challenging in terms of the letter our institution wrote, and I know AUKUS has challenged it, and it really ought to be separated. And ideally, they would create an outpatient score for CJR separate from those inpatients, similar to the way they already separate out 469 and 470 by whether or not they were involved with a hip fracture or not. 
And uh, time will tell. We won't see the uh, final rule until August or September, but it's hoped that they'll back off on doing it this way. They've claimed that they're going to be able to adjust for this by using the hierarchical condition codes. I don't think that's going to work, and we're just going to have to wait and see. It's interesting. Medicare can quantify the comorbidity burden of a patient. I think they have 550 different uh, Medicare comorbidities that can be quantified into a financial model. They certainly can figure out what the financial risk is based on the comorbid status of the patient. And certainly it it would be nice for them to uh, define who should uh, be paid as an inpatient. If they go home early, great. That means they did well. And who should be done as an outpatient? And then let us worry about that later. The other real unfair quality to this whole inpatient only rule is the patient. The patient, you know, if your 84-year-old grandmother gets a total hip replacement and she goes home after one night and she gets billed as an outpatient, she's subject to a 20% copay if she doesn't have a supplement. She has to pay for a DME. She has to pay for her outpatient prescriptions. And it's very hard to explain to an elderly person that she was an outpatient when she spent a night in the hospital. So this is crazy. It's really just a matter of semantics. We should be able to take care of our patients the way we think should be done best. And keeping people in the hospital for a couple extra days really isn't that expensive. So for us, we're not going to send them home until they they need to be. So they shouldn't really be trying to give us an incentive to do that. They should allow us to take care of people at the status of their comorbidities that they deserve. I think that's a great point. Dr. Yates, one more. Rich brought up how many comorbidities can be brought into play. Uh, But CMS has chosen to use the, again, the hierarchical um, condition classes. And the reason for that is, is that the HCCs are what they use for Medicare Advantage payments. And they have an experience with that. And they would like to harmonize how they use those for Medicare Advantage uh, with what they have they're used to using for risk adjustment and uh, the complications measure and the readmissions measures for total joints. And those are the HCCs. The problem is, is that even within those measures, it doesn't have a very high C-statistic or reliability in terms of being able to predict complications or readmissions. And more importantly, in terms of taking care of a population at large, the HCC codes might work for Medicare Advantage, but there's no validation whatsoever that it works in terms of risk adjusting and trying to balance inpatient, outpatient total needs and trying to make that an even playing field. So just they're wedded to that, and I don't think they'll uh, become more nuanced uh, in the final rule. Thanks. Dr. Courtney, you've done a lot of research on this topic. You mentioned some of it in, in, I think, one of your answers earlier, but what are some of the key points that you think the audience should be aware of on things that have been studied recently about value-based care, and they should really be take-home points, if you will, from the literature? Sure. So there's been a lot of studies out there, Rich and have written about half of them. The main take-home points, one are value-based care models have been successful. We're talking about some of the limitations and some of the nuances and how they're affecting patients' care and our surgeons' ability to care for patients. But overall, the BPCI was introduced in 2013. And, and if you look at a lot of some of the database studies and some of the studies at ET institutions, we're saving CMS, again, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in joint replacement care, and we're improving our patient outcomes. We've kept our readmission rate the same or have decreased it. 
we're lowering our complications, we're lowering our percentage of patients who are discharged to rehab, and we're decreasing our hospital length of stay. So I think that's one plus. The second thing, and what all these guys kind of have talked about, is CMS just needs to give us some more guidance. With the IPO list, again, the take-home points that I think are you need to set up an outpatient bundle, a separate outpatient target price, and Chick had touched a lot on that. And CMS is, is definitely looking into that with some of the, the other bundled payment models, fixing the effect that on the patient. So patients are now being covered under Medicare Part B under an outpatient procedure, even if they're spending two nights in the hospital and the hospital's coding them as an outpatient. So we looked and published out of our institution, 45% of all of our patients were coded as outpatients beginning in 2018. And of that, the average length of stay was 1.7 days, and almost half of them had an over two-day length of stay. So it's clear that the hospitals, at least in our area early on, are coding everything as, as an outpatient. Now, that's changed somewhat. This is data from, from two years ago. I think that's some of the big take-home points. And then the risk adjustment part, which we touched on, and how we can stratify patients based on these modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. Hip fractures are kind of a touchy issue. At least under CJR, there is a separate target price. With the COVID crisis going on, what, what's interesting is under our model, we've, we've been part of BPCI, hip fractures are incorporated into your historical price. So your target price is set based on the, the percentage of cases and the percentage of fractures that you took care of three years prior. So during the COVID crisis, we're not doing elective joint replacements over the last few months. So our percentage of hip fractures and those of the other institutions are increasing. So these are obviously sicker patients who are going to rehab. The data shows that they cost nearly twice as much as elective joint replacement patients. And these are proven to be catastrophic through a lot of bundle payment models. And I know AUKUS and the Academy have weighed in to try to have CMS suspend some of these penalties, particularly during the COVID crisis. I think that's a really important point, Dr. Courtney. Thank you for that. All right. So we're going to wrap up now. I'm going to put it to all three of you in two minutes. Tell me, where do you see value-based care going in the future? Well, before COVID, I would have told you we were going for 90-day DRGs and then eventually to disease management, uh, ACO type models where we would fit in managing all arthritis patients. With COVID, I think we've accelerated some of the larger public plans for health insurance. I don't want to get political, but you know, Medicare for all, I thought would have been a fantasy a year ago. I think now it's something that people are going to talk about much more seriously. We're going to have 30 million people out of work, probably another 10 after that. They're going to lose their insurance coverage. Where do they get it, right? That's going to, The government's the only place it's going to come from. So I think a Republican solution would be Medicare Advantage for all. You could enroll whatever your age is if you don't have employment or whatever and pay whatever your income allows you to. A Democratic solution might be a government-paid system for most people and then private for the people that want to do their own thing. I don't see our economy and our political geniuses coming up with anything better than that. So that's all I have. I don't know if that's optimistic or pessimistic. Dr. Yates? As already alluded to, there's going to be the intra-COVID experience versus someday after the rainbow, we're going to be back to normal and hopefully we can reach that point. In the interim, one of the things that I've actually called for in one of the articles in the uh, Journal of Arthroplasty Supplement was regulatory reform over the next 9 to 12 months. And by that, I mean, we don't know how to risk adjust for COVID. 
We don't know how to risk adjust for patients that have recovered for COVID. We don't know how to risk adjust for patients that have antibodies but not, may not be immune to COVID. And as such, it's really in, a, in an environment where the subtitle of Michael Porter's book on um, value-based medicine is through competition. And when hospitals have to compete against each other in federal programs, and we don't know how to risk adjust for the effect of COVID on their populations, and even you know their elective hip and knee replacements as they start to be done, it's not fair that that impact is more heavily felt by some regions than others. It's not fair for New York to compete against surgeons' outcomes in uh, Wyoming, for instance. So that's one thing that I think needs to be done is that there may have to be a moratorium on just the concept of value-based care until we can get a handle on what might end up being its own HCC. I mean, the whole concept of COVID may end up being a disease entity that rises to the level of a condition class. Going forward, I would like to say that the, and Dr. Iorio already alluded to this, the longitudinal management of the entirety of the spectrum of disease is clearly one of the goals for CMMI. And they've had listening sessions that they've invited a few of us to come in and comment on. And going forward, they would like to be able to take the entire population of patients with hip or knee arthritis and allow you to bundle that uh, or to uh, account for their care longitudinally. That couldn't have been done 20 years ago. But now the uh, data warehousing, the computerized, uh, you know, AI, everything else is there that they can keep track of that in a way they never could. You know, 20 years ago, being able to go back and get the risk adjustments, you know, on a year's worth of admissions for some of the measures they're using on Medicare databases would never have worked, but now they can do it readily. So it's conceptually much more attractive to take patients from the beginnings of their disease process and, and look at how you manage that rather than just at the end stage and work only on the procedural part of the cost. They're looking at hip and knee arthritis and spine as uh, prototypical examples of that. I know that the cost measures are being developed for longitudinal care as well, but they haven't touched on OA or uh, spine as of yet. So that's where I see things going. Thank you for that. Dr. Courtney, quickly, any last thoughts? This is your future. You're at the beginning of your career. It is. And I'm so excited to be doing hip and knee replacements despite all of the headaches and administrative burdens that we're facing. I think as value-based payment models continue to get more popular, there's more and more administrative burdens that surgeons are facing. So we're, we're being asked to be compliant with MIPS and reliant on HCAP scores and being graded and penalized on that. And I think a lot of the documentation for being part of the IPO list, I think a lot of the administrative burdens that physicians are facing, my generation of surgeons that are, that are facing is, is going to be a lot greater. So I, I do worry about that and, and hope that that's limited. As far as now, I think we all touched on the, the COVID crisis. I think CMS should be suspending a lot of the penalties and not penalizing surgeons and hospitals for still taking care of complex patients during this crisis. And then finally, I'm interested in what CMMI has to say with the longitudinal osteoarthritis bundle that, that Chick was touching on. Thanks. You know, there's certainly a lot of food for thought for our audience. And, and I, I think this has been a very valuable session. Hopefully, uh, it's provided a lot of information 
I, I know we all try to keep up with things as it comes out. It's hard to distill uh, everything and make sense of it. And then, you know, to get everyone to play together and, and play nicely is even another challenge. So I want to thank all of you for your time again this evening and getting this podcast together for our, our membership. I look forward to uh, having more of these discussions in the future and, and seeing you hopefully at a, at a meeting sometime soon when they uh, are able to start back up. So thank you very much. Thank you, Chad. Thanks for putting this together, Chad. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.